Yes. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your many, many blessings. And Lord, we ask that you would uh, be with us this year, 2015. And Lord, would you bless this class today and our church as well. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 It is a new year. So what happens at New Year? We reflect back on the old year, right? No. Or do we plan for the new year? No. No. <laughs> no. So, so there's a couple of, couple of different ways of living, right, at least. Um, one is to always live in the past. One is to always live in the future. And the other is to always live in the present. Where do you suppose we're called to live? Yeah. Right now. I, I can't imagine... When I was a youth, I'm sure I gave no consideration at all to 2015. But uh, the Lord has called us to live today. So I thought we would open with the psalm as we as is our practice. <clears throat> and I thought we would go to Psalm 66 this morning. Psalm 66. <clears throat> Whoever gets there first can read out. incense to God when we pray. It's uh, a fragrant, refreshing, joyous um, joyous thing for the Lord. He encourages us to prayer. Why, why do you suppose that is? Why do you suppose God is encouraged by our prayer? I mean, he can see the end from the beginning, so he's not surprised by anything. 
ever. Um, why do you suppose he delights in our prayers? He's all about relationship, and, and he wants us. He, he loves when we acknowledge him and come to him and acknowledge our need for him, our constant dependence on him. Yep. Um, exactly. It's it's about relationship and the dynamics of relationship. Can you imagine those of you that are married um, living? your whole married life with your spouse and never actually facing your spouse or talking to your spouse. You occupy space together, but you don't communicate and enjoy that relationship. Wouldn't that be just terrible? Well, that's the way it is when we turn our back on God. When we uh, figure that we know how to order our, our steps and, and uh, do it on our own, apart from the one who actually sustains us. And apart from that joyous communion with him, uh, that's what it would be like. It would be like being in a, a marriage where you don't face each other. You never get to see the other's face. You never get to talk to them. So God encourages us to prayer. We're in John, and uh, Bob uh, faithfully stood up and, and uh, shared... Um, the Spirit of Christmas, and introduction to John chapter 10 over the last couple weeks. And uh, as is my way, I'm going to retract everything because that's kind of what I do. Um, so what what is John about? <clears throat> what is John about? I, I've given you cheater notes here. <laughs> Yep. The Son of God in him, Perfecto. John twenty thirty one. And that what so John is writing about who Christ is and what it means to be in relationship to him. And that in relationship to him we have eternal life. And that he is eternal life. And he's gonna lay that out for us. He's been laying out who he is as uh, the fulfillment of the different uh, prophecies about him and the different religious practices that foretold what it was like to be in a personal relationship with God. Um, Christ has been living that out and declaring that, declaring the glory of God to humanity um, in their presence. And ultimately, he's going to show how um, true communion with God, eternal life, um, comes through him. And that we've all uh, heard the, the verse in chapter 14, Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Right. So that's what we're moving towards. And that's shared in the context of a very personal moment that Jesus has with his disciples. So that's in what we often call the upper room discourse. It's a time when Jesus sits down um, with his disciples after he's finished his public ministry. And he's essentially set that aside. And he's moving into a time of private communion with his followers. And he wants them to clearly understand. He wants them to know not just head knowledge about the prophecies of the Christ, but he wants them to, to understand that, to actually know the Christ, know in, in, in um, 
experiential way. So there's two words for knowledge in Greek. One of them has to do with the kind of knowledge you get when you go to university, right? So you study a book, and you get facts, and you fill your head, and you could probably regurgitate that. In fact, in their culture, oral culture, they definitely could. The scribes, their job was to memorize scripture. And so what they would do is that from their very early days, when they were set aside for ministry, they would start memorizing scripture. And not only would they memorize scripture, but they would memorize the commentary on scripture. So all of the rabbis that became uh, teachers, in the sense of uh, very um, wise guys, right? Um, they would study their different arguments about what the scripture meant. So they not only knew what it said, but they memorized what the interpretation was, what it meant, uh, according to these wise guys. And they could tell you from their head, word for word, just pretty much as Bob just did, what the scripture said. But there was a, a, a gap between their head and their heart. Uh, not for everyone, clearly, because there were definitely uh, people that knew the Lord, even if they didn't get the words right. Right? Um, they knew who God was and they declared him. And so we had the prophets and we had the judges and we had those that were called to lead God's people and those who were called to follow. Um, and followed, and we see that. So a lot of times throughout the Old Testament, we see the story of the underdog, right? The least likely in God's kingdom to actually get it. And those are the ones that get it. And as a result of getting it in their heart, actually make a significant difference in this world. So John wants uh, us to understand what he shared is such that we can know who Christ is. And that was really the public ministry of Christ to... Um, so that people could know him and believe in him. So there had to be a declaration uh, or an exposition of God for men. In fact, it even says that at the beginning of John. When we go back to chapter 1 and in the, uh, the prologue, um, that which comes before the main uh, body of the text, it says in verse 18 of chapter 1, it says, No one has seen God at any time. But the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him, or exegeted him. So what that means is what we see in the man Jesus is perfect expression of God. That is the word, right? And so we're seeing a whole lot of heavy theology in there, but it's all about knowing who God is perfectly because he wants to communicate and have relationship with us. Well, the way that Jesus approached people knowing him, exegeting who the Father was, such that people could not just have head knowledge from study of scripture, but heart knowledge from actually walking with God, um, was that he basically took on the religious system of the day. So what do you know about the Jews? Who were the, the Jewish people? Because the word Jews is used a lot in John. What does that mean? Descendants of Abraham through Isaac. So descendants of Abraham through Isaac, son of promise. And that Isaac had uh, a couple of boys, right? Jacob and Esau. And... Uh, and Jacob was not the firstborn, 
but he stole the birthright from his brother. And uh, he became then, by wrestling with God, going through a transforming experience where initially he was one that was um, uh, a very clever guy. In fact, if he was in business today, he would be the Donald Trump, or he would be the Bill Gates, the guy who really understood the way of the world and the way of business and could make a deal, right? That was Jacob. He could make a deal. In fact, he could even make a deal with, with those that were slick dealers. He made deals with his Uncle Laban and actually took his Uncle Laban's flocks as a result of being such a clever businessman, right? Jacob, at the end of the day, um, was empty because he had not only heard about God, but he had actually experienced God at one point in his journey, even though he didn't understand it. When he was fleeing from his brother Esau, and he had nothing with him, he had a vision of God actually opening heaven and descending to earth. And that was at a place called Bethel, which means house of God, and he built a memorial there. So he had this view, before he even started his clever business life, uh, of what it meant to be in relationship with God. It meant to be able to come into God's house, right? Which we understand that those that came before, um, like Moses, for example, um, and this was, Jacob was pre-Moses, but nonetheless, Moses actually had the opportunity to come into God's house. So we understand that this idea of coming into God's house is important in communion. And God actually opened the doors and showed how he was going to make a way between heaven and earth. To Jacob. Well, it just so happens when John starts out, it references that very episode in Jacob's life where the gates of heaven were opened and a stairway or a ladder was descending to earth, that there was a bridge between heaven and earth. The difference is, is that when John tells the story, and he, or when Jesus tells the story to Nathaniel, um, he uses a different tense of the verb. In Jacob's story, uh, the gates of heaven are opened and then they shut again. And he goes on and has this transformative experience and wrestles with God and ultimately becomes a man of God. But for him, the gates were closed. When Jesus came, he said, you will see the gates of heaven opened and remain open. And the angels ascending and descending, not just on the stairway that Jacob saw, but on the Son of Man. So he makes this, this allusion to Jacob's ladder. And you actually find that in uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 51. He says, And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened. And the, the tense there is what they call the perfect tense. It means it's a past action with a continuing result. The gates are flung open and they stay open. It's like the doorstop is set. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So we see that there's this whole head knowledge thing that somebody could put this all together from the patriarchs all the way through, but it requires this transformative experience where it goes from head to heart. And when it goes from head to heart, we uh, use a word for that which we call belief. We have a belief in our heart. It's something that we hold to be true. Now, we can hold false beliefs, 
But in this case, it's a true belief. It's a revelation from God. We um, appropriate that through faith, by believing. And that actually transforms us. We become transformed in this process of coming into the presence of God through faith. And at that point, then we start a journey with him, just as Jacob had a journey. So Jacob, after he wrestled with God, he got his name changed, which was a declaration that he would become a different person. And his name was changed from Jacob, which means deceiver or heel grabber, um, to Israel. Yisrael, which means uh, it's from the, the root uh, word, uh, infinitive form is to struggle or to strive. So it, it means one who strives with God. Well, then Jacob had 12 sons and they went to Egypt and then they got led out through a great deliverance, of which all of that is memorialized in the religious practice of these Hebrew children. Well, the Hebrew children quickly forgot. In fact, if you read the account in Exodus, they forgot the very day that God told them. God said, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to give you uh, bread. I'm going to give you meat. I'm going to give you water. I'm going to um, give you every word that sustains you directly from me. And uh, they immediately complained, and they didn't understand. In fact, they memorialized it as different traditions and different um, festivals of which we looked at certain festivals. We looked at and traditions. So we looked at uh, kind of the organization of John and this we're actually uh, in chapter the second division of the book. Um, so we understand that, um, that Jesus challenged these institutions. But the institutions and the festivals were put there to help people remember so they'd have the head knowledge so that through a relationship with God, through experiencing God, uh, not just head knowledge, but heart knowledge, the second Greek word to know, um, they would actually believe and embrace God as their Savior. That's what that whole thing was about, the Exodus. And that's what all of these festivals were about. Well, the first one that was given them when they came out of slavery was the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given for man. So if you read that, in fact, we read that on uh, Friday night as we were going through Exodus in our Bible study. Uh, if you look at Exodus chapter 16, and it's talking about the provision that God has, has given for his people, and the people just didn't get it, right? Um, in fact, I'll, I'll read it uh, from chapter 16 of Exodus, <clears throat> verse 22, down a bit. It says, now on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two homers for each one. <clears throat> when all the leaders <clears throat> of the congregation came and told Moses, then he said to them, this is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over put aside and keep until morning. So they put it aside until morning as Moses had ordered and it did not become foul nor was there any worm in it. So this is talking about the provision of God as a daily provision. It's like we live in today. And yet there was a, uh, a set-aside um, that they would do uh, as obedience, out of obedience, where the Lord would provide for them completely, that they didn't even need to gather. It was already gathered. It was already prepared. 
Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. It came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? It's like, I just told you, and you guys still don't get it, right? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. God gave the Sabbath to us, not man for the Sabbath. Um, Not the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man, right? That's the saying, Um, that God didn't uh, put the Sabbath there for us to have a religious... Um, way of approaching him rather he put that in place to give us rest and that that rest would be completely in him in fact we even read about that the Sabbath rest we read about in chapter 4 in Hebrews right? so that's what the very first institution before they even commemorated the Passover they had just experienced the Passover but they didn't have the celebration of the festival of the Passover yet the first thing that they were given for them was the Sabbath. And so what Jesus did is he went through and he challenged on all fronts these various uh, institutions, um, traditions, and festivals to show what the real meaning of it was, that the real meaning was all pointing back to him so that we could know him, not just in our head, but in our heart, through embracing him, through belief, and relationship, and as a result of that, we would be transformed, we would have eternal life in him, in his name, and that that would change the way that then we live out the present. And of course, it's going to change the way that you live out the future, based on what you're doing in the present, right? So that's the abide part. And he's got a lot to say about abiding, but guess what? None of it has to do with um, a prescription of rules to follow. When we get to the part where Jesus is talking about what it means to to walk with him, it's not about do's and don'ts. It's about resting in him, having confidence in what he has done for us. We're not there yet, but that's where we're going. And so we've been looking at first in chapter 5, where Jesus first took on the whole festival of the Sabbath. That he wanted to show that the Sabbath was for man, not man for the Sabbath. And that, um, that he had the actual authority to accomplish that. He showed that he was the provider. He was doing the very work of God. And that he showed that he was the one that was the true king, the true leader. He was the judge. That all judgment had been given into his hand by the Father. And in fact, he was the very source of life. He said, just as the Father has life in himself, so also the Son has life in himself. So we see that the first thing that Jesus took on was an understanding of one of the most fundamental aspects of religious practice, which is resting in him. We're not about doing God's work. We're about resting in him and participating with him in the work that he is doing. That that's for us. The next thing that he helped challenge and help people understand was the Passover. And what that is all about. And I encourage you to read the Passover uh, account, the first, the actual Passover that occurred in Exodus, and then read the Passion account as we come up to Easter. Because what you'll see is uh, an analog between the two. In that the Passover 
of being in a place that was all about the world and all about the king of this world, the pharaoh, and being in bondage, uh, and no matter how good you have it in that place, it is not your home, right? You've been called to a different kingdom. And how through a great work of God, he actually delivers you through death into his kingdom, that Passover. That's what we're coming up to in the Easter season. And this is what we're building to in John. And he helped them understand that the, the true bread of Passover, that, that uh, unleavened bread that they ate, was all about him. And that that sacrifice of the lamb and the blood that was offered and put as protection over the people was all about him. He said, my, my flesh is a true meal and my blood is a true drink. And when he said that, the people like freaked out because they didn't understand that he was putting himself in as the Passover. He is the Passover sacrifice. He, it's all about him. So he helped them uh, understand that, and at the end of the day, a lot of people were shook up and quit following him. So what you're seeing is, as this revelation happens, there's a challenge. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? That's what he keeps asking. And, and when the, he asked at the end of this, you know, like helping them understand the Passover... Um, Peter, you know, great guy Peter, speaks up and says, well, we're still following you, Lord. Who else has the words of life? Who else? Where is the truth other than in you? You are the Christ. So that was Peter's confession, right? We read that at the end of chapter 6. We get into chapter 7, and we see that after the Passover, and so he's kind of going through these festivals as they're laid out in, the, in the, the Jewish tradition. And they became the Hebrew children and then became the Jews. That, my original question is, what do you know about the Jews? Well, you look at the history and through the time of the judges and through the time of the kings up to the captivity, um, they basically did everything wrong that they could. They became adulterous, adulterous murderers. That's what the heart of the people had become. And in order to save the people, God actually needed to, to use the, the big spanking rod. And so he used Assyria to come in and wipe out ten of the tribes. So, we'll say nine of the tribes. And what happened is, is that whole area which had been called Israel in the north in uh, commemoration of their father Israel, Jacob, became no more, ceased to exist. And all that was left was uh, Ju Judah, the tribe of Judah. And Judah had assimilated Simeon, and um, the Levite tribe was also there serving in the temple. So that's why I say there was nine from the north, three in the south. But they were basically all summed up under the name Judeans. And the word Jew comes from Judeans. So it's already talking about people that have been refined to the point of being the only remaining of their original 12 tribes. 
And they're taken into captivity and they never again have a king until Messiah comes, until Shiloh comes. We read about that in the prophecy in Genesis. Right? So you see how this all fits together. And um, the Jewish people would remember these festivals and the, the festival of tabernacles is all about after the Passover how they came to receive the law and then they came to receive God's provision. So if you look at the festivals as they go through the fall and one of the things we're going to try and set up for later this year is a trip to Israel in the fall and uh, we'll catch some of those. Um, so I'll give you information on that, Tim. But the, the idea is, is that they start with what they call the heralding of Messiah, the day of trumpets, Rosh Hashanah. And after that heralding of Messiah, it's talking about the entry of Messiah as the conquering king. There are ten days of what they call the days of awe. It's a time of uh, grief over sin, over corporate sin, the sin of the, the nation, and over personal sin. And at the end, on the tenth day, of, of that grieving, they have the high priest go in and make an offering for sin at the very mercy seat of God. Right? And this happens once a year. This is the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And the priest makes this offering first for himself and then for the people. But they had to keep doing it year after year after year. But the, the festival goes that after Yom Kippur, they would have a big hoedown, seven-day hoedown. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and in that hoedown, which is called the Festival of Booths, it's all about God's provision. Not booths. 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 Oh, thanks for clarifying. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> or tabernacles. There you go. Sick with tabernacles. Tabernacles. Tabernacle means booth or tent. Right, uh, and what they would do is every day they would march down to the pool of Siloam, which I think I can bring up here for you. Where did I bring it up? Maybe it's here. Okay. And so what would happen is the, the temple is up here. I'll grab my pointer real quick. The temple's up there at the top. Temple looks like this. We go over here, take a look at the temple. So this is a temple picture. So <clears throat> this is the outer court, um, and uh, sometimes called the court of the women. And then this is the inner court, and the altar is in here. And inside, under this great facade, is this little area called the Holy of Holies. Um, this is the, the main area where they would go in, and they had the light stand and the showbread. Um, and the altar of incense, and then behind that is the curtain, and then behind the curtain is the mercy seat. And so that's all in this structure here. So this is the temple, and this is the temple mount, which still exists today. These, what are called porches or porticos, are all thrown down. They were thrown down by the Romans. But they would go from the altar, which is right behind this gate between the court of the women and to the court of the men, and they would um, start at the altar and they would go all the way down the Temple Mount and they would go, whoop, that's not the one I want, this is the one I want. So up here is the temple, they would come 
all the way down, and I can't tell if that's in focus, I don't have my glasses on. Uh, light's not real good here. But uh, they would come out uh, off the Temple Mount, they would come down this spit, this is called the City of David, right here. And they would come down to this pool, this is called the Pool of Siloam. And we read about, in chapter 9, uh, about a man who was healed from blindness. He was born blind. And Jesus meets him up here on the Temple Mount. And he tells him, uh, he spits on the ground and makes some mud and puts it on his eyes. He says, now go wash in the pool of Siloam. The word Siloam means sent. So another name for Messiah is sent. He is the one that is sent. He is the bridge from heaven to earth. Right? Is that so one of the days of the, the tablet? So yeah. Anyway. yeah, so what would happen is every day they would come down and they would take a pitcher of water from this pool and they'd come back up the hill up onto the Temple Mount and they would pour that on the altar. On the seventh day, the high day of the feast, they would do it seven times. And Jesus had already told them that he was the bread from heaven. He was that which was sustenance and provision for them. He had already told them that he was the living water. Right? That the source of life itself comes from him. That he was living water. And that what they were doing in pouring out this water was they were enacting the religious through the religious ceremony what Jesus had declared to them of who he was. That's why when we got to chapter 9 and you read about the guy who was born blind and um, he's told to go wash in the pool of Siloam, he is going to the place of scent. He's going to the place of Messiah. That's what that's all about. So when you read about in chapter 9... And this is all in the, the context of tabernacles, right? So this is after the high day of the, of the feast. So this is still in the context of the festival of tabernacles. And the, the question that's brought to Jesus is, who sinned, this man or, or his parents? Why do you suppose they ask that question? They assumed any malady was a consequence of their sin. Right. Brokenness is a result of sin. So clearly this man had to have sinned. They said the same thing about Job, right? And what does Jesus say? They said, who sinned? What's his answer? He doesn't say that neither sinned, although that's the way that you read it. It says it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents. Right. It's, that was not the cause. So what he's doing is he's, he's saying it's not about the cause of the brokenness. Because everyone has sinned. Man's parents sinned, and the man sinned. So he's not saying that here were two sinless sets of folk. What he's saying is, you're focusing on the cause, what the cause effect, the brokenness that's a result of sin. What you should be looking at is what the purpose of God is. What's the purpose of God? When he comes to man, what is he about doing? He's about healing. He's about redemption. Right? So he's declaring what Messiah has come for when the question is asked. And so when this man comes forward and he goes on and he says that he's the light of the world, 
What's happening here is a challenge of the human heart. So we've gone through uh, Sabbath, we've gone through Passover, we've gone through an explanation in, in tabernacles, and it's all about a revelation of who Messiah is. What does it mean to be the Christ? Who is the Christ? And is Jesus the Christ? That was the question. Now the question changes. It's not, is Jesus the Christ, although some are still going to ask that question. It's, do you believe this? Right? That's the change that happens in chapter 9. And so he's making a statement now about what Messiah does. And Messiah is going to heal this guy. He is the light of the world. All illumination about who God is comes through him. And he, he spits and he makes the, the clay and he puts it in the guy's eyes and he says, Now, go to the pool called Scent and wash. So there's, this, is, this is a part about belief. right? Here's a guy born blind, has no expectation that mud on his eyes is going to do anything. Um, and I'll point out that Jesus was the only one that ever um, healed the blind. Right? We know that lepers were, were cured. Uh, there's Naaman that was cured of leprosy. We know that people were raised from the dead. There was the, the widow, uh, uh, the, the child in Nain that was raised from the dead. So we know that those kinds of events had happened before, but there aren't events in the Old Testament about one who was born blind ever being healed. And so here's Messiah. He's, he's distinguishing. He's raised people from the dead. We're going to see that in chapter 11. Um, he's cleansed lep- lepers. We've seen that. And he, not only did he cleanse them, but he touched them before they were clean. And it didn't make him dirty. right? It didn't make him unclean. So we're seeing that he's demonstrating that he is the Christ. And now the, the challenge for this man is, do you believe it? And the man goes to Messiah. He goes to the place called Sent, and he washes. So there's obedience to the revelation, actually appropriating that and believing that that would change his life in some way. And what happens is, is that then he starts walking. He is changed, he's transformed, and he walks back, and people don't believe it. They not only don't believe him, but they don't believe Jesus. They, they don't believe him because they said, well, this, is, this can't be the guy. Nobody that's been born blind is actually healed. And yet he presents enough evidence that they say, well, okay, I guess so. But clearly this man, Jesus, couldn't have done it because he's a sinner too. We know that because he did it on the Sabbath. right? They had made this religious practice that the Sabbath wasn't for man. It wasn't a gift from God to man for wholeness, for shalom, for entering into God's rest, but rather it was something that became a burden. They took what was freedom, the the leadership of the day, and they made it a yoke, a bondage to these people, the Sabbath. And they said anybody that breaks this yoke clearly cannot be a man of God. So not, either you're not the man, or if you are the man, he couldn't have done it because he's a sinner. And no one who's a sinner could, could do this. Only God could do this. That's the claim. 
And the man finally, after giving his testimony repeatedly, because um, they're, they're saying, in verse 24 of chapter 9, it says, So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And then he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they continue to pressure him. He's giving an accurate account and testimony of what happened in his life. And yet he's threatened with persecution. He's threatened with being cast out. Not only was he an outcast to begin with, but now he's going to be cast out. He is going to have no right in the Jewish um, community. This could affect your employment. This could affect your ability to go to, uh, to worship in the places of worship. Um, this could affect your ability to marry or any of those things, right? He was being thrown out. He was an outcast from the community. He was being cast out. And he chooses to be a disciple. And, and he, we see that in, in verse 27. Because he's already a disciple and he's saying, you do not want to become his disciple too, do you? He's pointing it back at them. It's like, the question is to you also, do you believe? That's what he's doing. He's turning it back on them. And what we see is that he says, uh, the man then answered, this is verse 30 of chapter 9, and said to them, well, here's an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. God does not hear sinners. We actually just read that in Psalm 66. That's the psalm that we opened up with. We look at Psalm 66. I can get to it here. And uh, we look at Psalm 66, verse 18. It says, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. So you see, it's about a heart condition. The heart condition is about that communion, that conversation with God like between the husband and the wife. And we actually see the language of husband and wife used about the relationship between God and his people. If you're not talking to God, if you're not in communion with him, what is the state of your heart? If I regard wickedness in my heart, then the Lord will not hear. And that word regard... um, means uh, to actually hold it as a value, that we place something of value other than God's goodness and holiness. That would be the things that we hold on to in the world. And the, the note that I had made uh, when I was looking at chapter 9, I said this is a story, uh, is one about open and closed hearts. You see, you see this progression about the revelation of who the Christ is. And all of a sudden you get to the question, do you believe this? That's, this is the pivot point in John. And it's like uh, a lump of wax that you set out into the sun. What happens to wax that's put into the sunlight? It gets soft. It melts. What happens to clay 
moist clay that's put out into the sunlight. It becomes hard and cracked. The state of the heart, is it one that's being softened by the light as it comes in, even though that light brings judgment? So Jesus said he didn't come into the world to judge the world. The world was judged already, but rather he came to bring life. But in doing that, in showing mercy, he also brings judgment. He is the judge. When you stand in the light, you're judged. Are you wax or are you clay? Are you going to get hard or are you going to get soft? We know examples from the Old Testament of those who got hard, like Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. And he hardened his heart. And finally God said, okay, your heart is hardened. And then we see examples of those who, like Jacob, his heart was softened. Even though he had tumbled and stumbled and fell, um, and in many ways was an embarrassment to Abraham. Yet nonetheless, God chose him because his heart became soft. It cost Jacob. He walked with the limp after that. When wrestling with God, you know, serious stuff happens. But nonetheless, he was transformed. That's what this story in chapter 9 is about. It's about your heart condition. I know that because we get down to the end of chapter 9, and I look at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out. In other words, this guy was persecuted for his faith, and he was put out of the community. He was an outcast. And Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? So, get this lesson. Jesus sought him out. You're not left alone. God's coming looking for you. Don't care what it feels like. God's looking for you, just like he looked for Adam and Eve after they had sinned. Right? He comes looking for us, and then, this is the question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he's using a specific title that is the title for the Christ, the one whom we read about in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where Daniel, in a vision, saw the throne room of God, saw the throne of God, and that one was presented before the sovereign God, and that one was like a Son of Man. And what was given to him was dominion, an eternal dominion. Let me go ahead and read it for you. Because this is the reference. Daniel 7.13 I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Can't be destroyed by death. Nothing can take away from God. That's 
who the Christ is. And he comes up to the man and says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. The wax or the clay. He came to bring illumination. He is the light of the world. And we read in the introduction to John, he uses this very same kind of phenomenal language. It says in... Uh, Was that Daniel 7? Pardon? Was that Daniel 7? Daniel 7, 13. Yeah. In 14 were the verses I read. So we, we read in the, the prologue um, where it says... Describing the Word, and I'll just read from the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Pretty clear. He was in the beginning with God. He came before the Ancient of Days, right? We read it in Daniel. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So the very life of Jesus, the Christ, present, God present, Emmanuel, with us, is not only our life, and that was demonstrated through his resurrection, but it also is that which makes us squirm in judgment. Because we bring nothing to God. We don't bring anything that makes us redeemable, right? Rather, God values us, and that's the value we have, is that God chose us. He chose to value us and to love us and to redeem us. All about who he is. And it says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Nothing can take away from who God is. Death cannot conquer God. He conquers death. And that's what he said. He came that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. In other words, he challenged the very religious structures of the day to say, if that's what your salvation is, is your religion, you're lost. You're blind. You have no illumination in you. It's all about Jesus. Jesus as the Christ. And of course they're offended. Why wouldn't they be offended? He basically called their baby ugly. Anybody have an ugly baby? There's a period of time that elapses between that episode and what we see in chapter 10. And that period of time is a matter of a couple of months. So the Festival of Tabernacles ends um, and it probably, I, I, let me see if I wrote down the dates for that particular year um, when it occurred, but it would have occurred in October of, uh, of that year. I sometimes write down the dates based on figuring things out. Okay, here we go. So the Feast of Booze was September 10th through the 17th in 32 AD. So that's when they would have done that. Rosh Hashanah would have been earlier, towards the beginning of September, then the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, then the Festival of Booze. So um, 
In this case, Rosh Hashanah was almost the 1st of September. That's when it occurred. When we pick up in chapter 10, it's actually December 18th. So, about three months there. For first correction from what I said last week, because the commentaries that I went through in chapter 10 basically said the conversation in chapter 10 is the same setting as the, the blind man being healed. Right. And, and he's talking basically against the Pharisees. And, you know, it's continuing right. that conversation. And, and that's... Uh, um, so, in, in critical theory, when you're looking at how uh, how you would arrange John chronologically and relate it, um, there are instances where they want to flip chapters, like chapter 5 and chapter 6. They want to reverse the order and things like that, based upon how a chronology would work. And so, usually what they do is they break chapter 10 at verse 21. And they say, up through 21 is still related to the previous story. But in 22 it says, at that time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. Right there. Okay. And the Feast of Dedication is Hanukkah. Okay. I and told these guys last week that there is no commercial break between 9 and 10. Or that's continuation ah. of the same conversation. Well, the reason that the, the commentaries say that is because the theme is still expressed about the light. And that's why I'm trying to draw attention to what does that light mean. That light is revealing the state of the heart. So what you see in 9 and 10 is a call to believe. So the revelation of who Christ is has been given completely. There may be some nuanced clarification, the shepherd, the gate, but that has already been completely expressed through chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. And what happens in 9 and 10 is... um, a call to make a decision. And we see a commentary, the first part of chapter 10, is about the leadership, because you look at the end of chapter 9, and uh, the people who heard Jesus say, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind, the, the Pharisees understood that he was talking about those who were the religious leaders, that they had hardened their hearts through religious practice. And he said, you're not calling us blind, are we? That's what he says. So those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? So they're offended, right? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. In other words, these people were so hard that they refused the revelation of God into their life. They refused the light to convict them of sin. They refused the entry of God into their life. Rather, they were their God. They knew what was right. They weren't blind. And Jesus said, you can't see your nose on your face. Right? And what happens is, is in chapter 10, even though it's a different chronological context, it's thematically related. So what happens is, at the beginning of chapter 10, which is where we're at right now, he's making an additional commentary about the leadership. And it just so happens that that commentary on leadership is also associated with the the festival of uh, the Feast of Dedication. Because, and I know I'm out of time, but I'm going to give you this little tidbit here. So, um, there's the laugh. So I know I'm out. Uh, what happens at the, the Feast of Dedication was about when the Jews had been a conquered people. Judea, taken captivity, 
taken to captivity in Babylon, Persians conquered the Babylonians, Greek conquered the Persians. Um, under the Greeks, um, they were assimilated into the culture to a high degree. In fact, they even rewrote their Old Testament scriptures um, in Greek. It's called the Septuagint, the 70 that put that together. And these were scribes that were, we call them Hellenistic. They had become uh, enculturated in Greek culture, but nonetheless they still had their oral tradition that they were preserving through the language of the day. And their religious system became corrupted in that intertestamental period. So we have the revelation of the prophets up through uh, the last one, right? Malachi, the Italian prophet. <laughs> Malachi. And we see that then there's this gap in Revelation. Well, in that gap, if you read about what happened in history, um, really bad things happened. The whole priesthood became corrupted. And there were some really bad priests that were in collaboration with the Greeks, one called Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who did just terrible, abominable things. He sacrificed a pig on the altar. He put an idol to his gods in the temple. Right? He defiled everything that was holy according to the Jewish religious practice, and that had the, uh, it was condoned by the priesthood. So one rose up in that priesthood who was very zealous, uh, Judas uh, Maccabees, and he retook through a rebellion the temple. And in the temple, he had to rededicate it. They had to go through, remove all of that idolatry, and then reconsecrate the temple. And because he only had enough oil to burn for one day in the lamp, the lampstand, that would be in the temple, inside the temple, before the Holy of Holies, um, they had to send for oil and have it purified down the hill. So this is Jerusalem. I know I'm way out of time. Grant me just a second here. So basically he's right in here, had to come all the way down to um, my pointer here. So Jerusalem right here. They had to come all the way down to the coastal plain, or the Shevelah, where they had the olive presses, get that olive oil, allow it to be blessed and consecrated, and get it back up the hill. It took eight days. That's why the Hanukkah candle has eight lampstands. Because it was about the rededication. The Pharisees actually came from these religious zealots that they, they were so uh, true to what the practice of the Jews were that they would go to this effort of overthrowing the Greek general, retaking the temple, reconsecrating it, that's where the Pharisees came out of. And yet they had totally lost their way. They had become corrupt. That's what Jesus is talking about because that's what they would talk about in the dedication of what we call Hanukkah, the festival of dedication. They would actually read from Ezekiel about the, the false shepherds. That's why this whole passage is in here about the good shepherd. What's the difference between a false shepherd and a good shepherd? If you're given a choice, do you believe this? You need to know that you're responding to the good shepherd and not the false shepherd. And so John puts it together. He says this is thematically related. 
even though it's chronologically separated in time. So that's a long answer to a short question. What you reported was what the commentaries typically teach. And not all commentaries say that. Yeah. Right? And, but that's why. It's because they're saying, oh, well, it's related. Well, yeah, because John relates everything. He's, he's got a thematic organization, not a chronological organization. But Jesus points out that, oh, the reason this was about was because it was the festival of dedication. It was the winter, December 18, 32 AD. And finally, the people get to the point where they say, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. This is where we're going to end. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The problem is one of belief. It's not one of knowledge here. It's one of appropriating that knowledge in your heart. Actually making Jesus your king. He is my king. That's where we'll end. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So there's a following part that comes. And this is what we're going to see from this point forward. What it looks like to follow. What it looks like to be in the entourage of the good shepherd. To actually come in through the gate and to be one of those that he calls his own. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for opportunity um, to come to your word this morning. And uh, Lord, I know I'm going through things slow, but uh, desire to be faithful in giving your word to your people. And Lord, ask that your word would go out and accomplish that for which you intended it. And that... Uh, we're encouraged to do that, Lord. Lord, we thank you for um, giving us a, another year of opportunity to serve you, to walk uh, daily uh, after you. Lord, help us to do that in ways that we maybe haven't in the past, um, in our work, in our home, in our conversations over coffee. Lord, help us to um, always reveal who you are to a lost world, Lord. We know that that... Um, light that comes in brings judgment with it as well and there's a pushback to that Lord give us the strength to walk through the pushback through the challenges and the persecution Lord uh, we thank you for your provision that you never never fail us and abandon us and leave us without you but rather provide for us everything that we need and uh, even though we may not understand that all the time Lord we thank you for your provision your protection and Lord we uh, are so grateful for your sacrifice and service to us. Lord, we thank you for this. We ask that you be with Bob this morning as he reveals your word. We ask that people would hear, that hearts would be softened as a result of coming into communion with you, Lord. We thank you for this, and we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.